All right, so we begin with uh, the great divorce here, and we're going to begin with the preface. And uh, Lewis notes, uh, William Blake wrote, uh, the marriage of heaven and hell, as though the two could be combined together. And he notes that this is a, this is, uh, a, a tremendous error. Um, and I'd like to pick up here. We are not living in a world where all roads are radii of a circle and where all have followed long enough will therefore draw gradually nearer and finally meet at the center. Rather, in a world where every road after a few miles forks into two and each of those into two again. And at each fork, you must make a decision. It reminds me of taking the back way from Ash Fork back to Williams. And the first time I did it, I thought, should I turn there? Should, no, that doesn't look right. But every turn off and et cetera, there, it was a clear there was a decision that would probably lead to my impending doom if I chose the wrong one. So I thought, even on the biological level, life is not a river, but like a tree. It does not moves, move towards unity, but away from it. And the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection. This is a good quote here. Good as it ripens becomes, becomes continually more different, not only from evil, but from other good. If you were to consider a, a human person as they grow in goodness, they do not become more like another person. They become more individual. Even if you, if you really were to look at the saints, you know, you would find an incredible amount of individuality. You would not find sameness um, in, that, in that goodness, which they gradually incorporate. I do not think that all who choose wrong roads perish, but their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unbound bit by bit with backward mutters of disserving power, dissevering power, or else not. It is still either or. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. That reminds me, this is the first book I ever read of Lewis. Um, uh, because there was a song called High Countries uh, that a musici musician uh, that I really liked at the time, and he, he referenced this book. And so, oh gosh, how old was I? I was, probably, I was probably 17 or so. And I thought, well, who's the C.S. Lewis guy? You know? And then I read this book, and then now I'm still talking about him uh, at 35. <laughs> 46. But what you ask of earth? Earth, I think, will not be found by anyone to be in the end a very distinct place. I think earth, if chosen instead of heaven, will turn out to have been all along only a region of hell. And earth, if put second to heaven, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. 
This is going to give you a clue. That little passage gives you a clue um, to, to the gray town that we will meet as we, as we read. Um, so he's giving you in here in the, in the preface a little bit about you know, what he really thinks. Moving to the last uh, paragraph here of the preface. The second thing is this. I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. It has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral. But the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish to arouse is factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. So that, that's what I just said. So as, as we read about this, and it, you know, if you say, well, is he saying that in heaven it's going to be hard to walk on the grass? You know, I'm going to say, if, if you don't know what that means yet, you'll know. I'm going to say, well, that's not his point at all. He's not talking about details of heaven, okay? So the book is not about what he thinks is actually going to be in heaven. Are there really going to be ghosts in heaven? You know, it's not about that, okay? So as we're reading, we have to kind of get our minds out of the literal sphere, okay, and more into a sort of, a, you know, a fantasy or an allegorical sphere and see the moral, which is what he says. There's a moral. There's a meaning here. So it's like a... You know, it's like, uh, it's like those horrible, uh, uh, what are they called, uh, fairy tales or what, the grim things where they like kill children and stuff. Um, is that one like a witch burns kids or something? I don't know. Yeah, Grimm's fairy tales. Like they're, they're grotesque, right? But if you're really, yeah, they're really, really scary. But they're meant to, to provoke a moral within children, right? Don't wander off in the woods alone or you're going to die, basically, you know, is the moral. Whether it's a wolf or a whatever. Okay. Ready? All right. No factual curiosity, as he says. Um, so let us get into our, which brain, which part of the brain, is that left brain or right brain? The imaginary. Left brain, right? Whatever. Go to that, go to that place. Here we go. I seem to be standing in a busy queue by the side of a long, mean street. Evening was just closing in, and it was raining. I had been wandering for hours in a similar mean streets, and always the rain and always in evening twilight. Time seemed to have paused on that dismal moment when only a few shops have lit up, and it is not yet dark enough for their windows to look cheering. And just as the evening never advanced to night, so my walking had never brought me to the better parts of the town. However far I went, I found only dingy lodging houses, small tobacconists, hoardings from which posters hung in rags, windowless warehouses, goods stations without trains, and bookshops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. I never met anyone. But for the little crowd at the bus stop, the whole town seemed to be empty. I think that's why... I attached myself to the queue. I had a stroke of luck right away, for just as I took my stand, a little waspish woman who would have been ahead of me snapped out at a man who seemed to be with her. Very well, then, I won't go at all, so there, and left the queue. Pray don't imagine, said the man in a very dignified voice, that I care about going in the least. I have only been trying to please you, for peace sake. My own feelings are, of course, a matter of no importance. I quite understand that. And suiting the action to the word, he also walked away. Come, thought I, that's two places gained. 
I was now next to a very short man with a scowl who glanced at me with an expression of extreme disfavor and observed rather unnecessarily loudly to the man beyond him, this sort of thing really makes one think twice about going at all. What sort of thing, growled the other, a big beefy person. Well, said the short man, this is hardly the sort of society I'm used to, as a matter of fact. Huh, said the man, and then added with a glance at me, don't you stand any sauce from him, mister. You're not afraid of him, are you? Then seeing I made no move, he rounded suddenly on the short man and said, not good enough for you, are we? Like your lip. Next moment, he had fetched the short man one on the side of the face that sent him sprawling into the gutter. Let him lay, let him lay, said the big man to no one in particular. I'm a plain man, that's what I am, and I've got to have my rights, same as anyone else, see? As the short man showed no disposition to rejoin the queue and soon began limping away, I closed up rather cautiously behind the big man and congratulated myself on having gained yet another step. A moment later, two young people in front of him also left us arm in arm. They were both so trousered, slender, giggling, and falsetto that I could be sure of the sex of neither, but it was clear that each for the moment preferred the other to the chance of a place on the bus. We shall never all get in, said a female voice, with a whine in it from some four places ahead of me. Change places with you for five bob, lady, said someone else. I heard the clink of money and then a scream in the female voice mixed with roars of laughter from the rest of the crowd. The cheated woman leaped out of her place to fly at the man who had bilked her, but the others immediately closed up and flung her out. So what, with one thing and another, the queue had reduced itself to manageable proportions long before the bus appeared. Okay, so he's setting the stage of this, uh, this town that he's wandering in, this, this dreary, gray, miserable town where there doesn't seem to be anybody except for this lineup at the bus stop. And, uh, you know, as he's encountering these people, um, they're all rather, you know, nasty people is the point. You know, he's witnessing these people, and they, these, are, these are like, and they're not like, you know, murderous people. They're just petty and, you know, kind of consumed with themselves and, and et cetera, okay? They're, 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 they, they, have, they have issues, <laughs> all right? So, again, he's setting the, he's setting the stage here. So here comes the bus. It was a wonderful vehicle, blazing with golden light. Her I'm going to get this word wrong. Her heraldically, heraldically colored. <laughs> the driver himself seemed full of light, and he used only one hand to drive with. The other he waved before his face as if to fan away the greasy steam of the rain. A growl went up from the queue as he came in sight. Looks as if he had a good time of it, eh? Bloody pleased with himself, I bet. My dear, why can't he behave naturally? Thinks himself too good to look at us. Who does he imagine he is? All that gilding and purple. I call it a wicked waste. Why don't they spend some of the money on their house property down here? God, I'd like to give him one to the ear hole. I could see nothing in the countenance of the driver to justify all this, unless it were that he had a look of authority and seemed intent on carrying out his job. My fellow passengers fought like hens to get on board the bus, though there was pr plenty of room for us all. I was the last to get in. The bus was only half full, and I selected a seat in the back well away from the others. But a tousle-haired youth at once came and sat down beside me. As he did so, we moved off. 
I thought you wouldn't mind my tacking on to you, he said, for I've noticed that you feel just as I do about the present company. Why on earth they insist on coming, I can't imagine. They won't like it at all when we get there, and they'd really be much more comfortable at home. It's different for you and me. Do they, do they like this place, I asked. As much as they'd like anything, he answered. They've got cinemas and fish and chip shops and advertisements and all the sorts of things they want. The appalling lack of any intellectual life doesn't worry them. I realized as soon as I got here that there'd been some mistake. I ought to have taken the first bus, but I fooled about trying to wake people up here. I found a few fellows I'd known before and tried to form a little circle, but they all seemed to have sunk to the level of their surroundings. Even before we came here, I'd have some doubts about a man like Cyril Blello. I always thought he was working in a false idiom, but he was at least intelligent. One could get some criticism worth hearing from him, even if he was a failure on the creative side. But now he seems to have nothing left but his self-conceit. The last time I tried to read him some of my own stuff, but wait a minute, I'd like, I'd like just like you to look at it, realizing with a shudder that when he was producing, what he was producing from his pocket was a thick wad of typewritten paper. I muttered something about not having my spectacles and exclaimed, hello, for we've left the ground. Okay, so again, the, the book, I guess, kind of takes off kind of slow, but <laughs> the, he's setting up these, this, this interaction with these crazy people, okay? So now he's getting on the bus, and some knucklehead sits down next to him complaining about Cyril Blello, who's a fictional character, or some perhaps literary critic, all right? And um, all of these people are complaining. All of these people are unhappy. None of these, you know, even the bus driver makes them angry. You know, here comes the bus, and it's golden in all, all these colors as opposed to this gray, depressing town they live in. And they're irate about that. You know, that, that makes them angry. Everything makes them angry. Everything, that's the, that's the whole point that I want you to observe through this this, this initial, um, the initial of what we're hearing is the characters and, and kind of what's going on with them and how disagreeable they seem. It was true, several hundred feet below us, already half hidden in the rain and mist, the wet roofs of the town appeared, spreading without a break as far as the eye could reach. Chapter 2. You don't even have to buy the book on tape. You can just listen to this. Um, I was not left very long at the mercy of the tousled-headed poet because another passenger interrupted our conversation, but before that happened, I had learned a good deal about him. He appeared to be a singularly ill-used man. His parents had never appreciated him, and none of the five schools at which he had been educated seemed to have made any provision for a talent and temperament such as his. To make matters worse, he had been exactly the sort of boy in whose case the examination system works out with the maximum unfairness and absurdity. It was not until he reached the university that he began to recognize that all these injustices did not come by chance, but were the inevitable results of our economic system. Capitalism did not merely enslave its workers, it also vitiated taste and vulgarized intellect. Hence our educational system and hence the lack of recognition for new genius. This discovery had made him a communist. But when the war came along and he saw Russia in alliance with the capitalist governments, he had found himself once more isolated and, and had to become a conscientious objector. The indignities he suffered at this stage of his career, he had confessed, embittered him. He decided he could serve the cause best by going to America. 
but then America came into the war too. It was at this point that he suddenly saw Sweden as the home of a really new and radical art, but the various oppressors had given him no facilities for going to Sweden. There were money troubles. His father, who had never progressed beyond the most atrocious mental complacency and smugness of the Victorian epoch, was giving him a ludicrously inadequate allowance. And he had been very badly treated by a girl, too. <laughs> Just seems petty. Anyway, he had thought her a really civilized and adult personality, and then she had unexpectedly revealed that she was a mass of bourgeois prejudices and mono monogamic instincts. Jealousy, possessiveness was a quality he particularly disliked. She, even had, she had even shown herself at the end to be mean about money. That was the last straw. He had jumped under a train. <laughs> so, okay, another feature about all these people is, you know, it's never their fault. So this guy that they were, you know, he was just listening to complain about his entire life. He had to listen to all of this whining and complaining about all these people. And, you know, he could, this, this guy could never settle on, a, on a, a movement to follow because, you know, nobody was ever good enough. And then his father wasn't good enough and didn't give him enough money. And then, then he fell in love, but she wasn't good enough. And then he finally had had enough, so he committed suicide. And now he's complaining about, still in the afterlife, he's complaining about all of this, right? All of this sort of victimization he's received. I gave a start, but he took no notice. Even then he continued. Ill luck had continued to dog him. He had been sent to the gray town, but of course it was a mistake. I would find he assured me that all the other passengers would be with me on the return journey, but he would not. He was going to stay there. He felt quite certain that he was going where at last his finely critical spirit would no longer be outraged by an uncongenial environment where he would find recognition and appreciation. Meanwhile, since I hadn't got my glasses, he would read me the passage about which Cyril Bolello had been so insensitive. It was just then that we were interrupted. One of the quarrels which were perpetually simmering on the bus had boiled over and for a moment there was a stampede. Knives were drawn, pistols were fired, but it all seemed strangely innocuous. And when it was over, I found myself unharmed, though in a different seat and with a new companion. He was an intelligent-looking man with a rather bulbous nose and a bowler hat. I looked out the windows. We were now so high that all below us had become featureless. But fields, rivers, or mountains I did not see, and I got the impression that the gray town still filled the whole field of vision. It seems the deuce of a town I volunteered, and that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a much larger population? Okay, so now we're going to get a little bit into the details about what in the heck is this town about, okay, and what does it perhaps signify? No, not at all, said my neighbor. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarreled with their neighbors and moved. If so, he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You'll, you've only got to think a house, and there it is. That's how the town keeps growing, leaving more and more empty streets. That's right, and time's sort of odd here. 
That place where we caught the bus is thousands of miles from the civic center where all the newcomers arrived from Earth. All the people you've met were living near the bus stop, but they'd taken centuries of our time to get there by gradual removals. And what about the earlier arrivals? I mean, there must be people who came from Earth to your town even longer ago. That's right, there are. They've been moving on and on, getting farther apart. They're so far off by now that they could never think of coming to the bus stop at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of rising ground near where I live and a chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where those old ones live millions of miles away, millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then they move further still. That's one of the disappointments. I thought you'd meet interesting historical characters, but you don't, they're too far away. Okay, so basically people die. Some people who die go to this town, okay? They go to this gray town, this, this depressing town. And what happens is, as, as we've seen on the bus and we've seen in the, the line for the bus, everybody's perpetually arguing with one another, right? They can't stand each other's company. And so what we found out is in this, town, as it were, um, every time somebody gets upset with somebody, they just move further away from, from, from that person. And what you find then is this whole mass of people, they're, you know, moving further and further into self, self, self-imposed isolation, alienation from one another, that the people actually desire to be further away from each other than to have any sort of community, okay? Now, obviously, what, what precipitates this is, is the ego, right? The, the inability to, to be in relationship with anyone else. And the fact that they can't be in relationship with any, any other individual soul obviously says something about their inability to be in relationship with God as well. They ha- they're, they're so uh, focused on the self, um, which, is, which is how uh, uh, St. Augustine describes sin. You know, that it's, it's, it's a curving into the self. You know, you get that idea of navel-gazing, you know. It's, it's uh, for, for Augustine, the whole idea of sin is that it's, it's a focus on the self. You know, that ultimately the worst things about sin are not that, you know, the particular thing that we do wrong, but the cumulative effect of all of these things that we've done wrong get us focused on the self more than on anyone else, right, which is the opposite of charity. Charity is the, the extension of the self toward, of an, toward another, the giving of the self to another, and, and the, the sort of forgetting of the self for the sake of the other's good. That's what it means to be, to be loving and to be charitable. So people who have the inability to be charitable have an inability to even want to give any part of themselves away, but rather they hoard, every, they hoard themselves, you know, for themselves. And continually in this town, it's sort of exemplified then through this alienation. They keep moving further and further away because they just can't stand anyone else but themselves. So these are all dead people or just the souls of dead people? Uh, yes. These are all dead people. And remember, it's, it's a fantasy. So yeah, it's, yeah. you know. But yeah, these are all dead people. And, and they... And that's what he says here when they, they arrive from Earth, so after they die. And like the other guy who threw himself under a train, you know, so this is the afterlife, okay? They really don't know where they are. But they don't really know where they are. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, that'll unfold. Um, 
it's, it's what's interesting about the setup. So the setup of, of all this stuff about the town and about the people is it becomes revealed later on where they think they are and what they think where they are, you know, has meaning. Like, why does it have meaning? Why does it not have meaning, et cetera? Um, it just takes us a couple chapters to get there, and that becomes illuminated rather well. Okay. So they move further and further miles away. I'll skip ahead here a little bit. Um, you know, they, some, some people went out on an expedition to, to try to find Napoleon. <laughs> and he was just in a house muttering, walking back and forth, blaming everybody else for his failures. Um, and we'll pick up here. Then the town will go on spreading indefinitely, I said. That's right, said the intelligent man, unless someone can do something about it. How do you mean? Well, as a matter of fact, between you and me and the wall, that's my job at the moment. What's the trouble about this place? Not that people are quarrelsome. That's only human nature and was always the same, even on Earth. The trouble is they have no needs. You get everything you want, not very good quality, but just by imagining it. That's why it never costs any trouble to move to another street or build another house. In other words, there's no proper economic basis for any community life. If they needed real shops, chaps would have to stay near where the real shops were. If they needed real houses, they'd have to stay near where real builders were. It's scarcity that enables society to exist, and that's where I come in. I'm not going on this trip for my health. As far as that goes, I don't think it would suit me up there. But if I can come back with some real commodities, anything at all that you could really bite or drink or sit on, why at once you'd get a demand down in our town. I'd start a little business. I'd have something to sell. So it's interesting, right? Because all, all these people have to do is imagine it and they get what they want. It's not good, but all they got to do is think, I want a house and a house, you know, appears. It's, so they kind of get everything they want, but they don't get it. It's not a very, you know, it's not very good quality, et cetera. Um, and so he's saying, well, they just, they, they just have to have real needs. Well, obviously they must perceive needs if they're presumably making and creating things, okay? Um, anyway, so he goes on about that. You mean if they, if they had to live together, they, they'd gradually learn to quarrel less. That's what he's trying to say. I can bring commodity back and maybe I can build some kind of economic situ situation where people would have to engage each other. Well, I don't know about that. I dare say there could be, they could be kept a little quieter. You'd have a chance to build up a police force knock some kind of discipline into them. Anyway, it'd be better, you know, everyone admits that, safety in numbers. Safety from what, I began, but my companion nudged me to be silent. I changed the question. But look here, said I, if they can get everything just by imagining it, why would they want any real things, as you call them? Oh, well, they'd like houses that really kept out the rain. Their present houses don't. Well, of course not. How could they? <laughs> well, what the devil is the use of building them, then? The intelligent man put his head closer to mine. Safety again, he muttered, at least the feeling of safety. It's all right now, but later on, you understand. What, said I, almost involuntarily sinking my own voice to a whisper. He articulated noiselessly as if, I, as if expecting that I understood lip reading. I put my ear up, to, up close to his mouth. Speak up, I said, it will be dark presently, he mouthed. You mean the evening is really going to turn into a night in the end? He nodded. What's that got to do with it, said I. Well, no one wants to be out of doors when that happens. Why? His reply was so furtive that I had to ask him several times to repeat it, 
When he had done so, being a little annoyed, as one so often is with whisperers, I replied without remembering to lower my voice. Who are they? I asked. And what are you afraid they'll do to you? And why should they come out when it's dark? And what protection would an imaginary house give if there was any danger? Here, shouted the big man, who's talking all that stuff? You stop your whispering, you two, if you don't want a hiding. Spreading rumors, that's what I call it. You shut your face, Ikey. Quite right, scandalous, ought to be prosecuted. How did they get on the bus, growled the passengers. A fat, clean-shaven man who sat on the seat in the front of me leaned back and addressed me in a cultured voice. Excuse me, he said, but I couldn't help overhearing parts of your conversation. It's astonishing how these primitive superstitions linger on, I beg your pardon. Oh, God bless my soul, that's all it is. There's not a shred of evidence that this twilight is ever going to turn into a night. There has been a revolution of opinion on that in educated circles. I'm surprised that you haven't heard of it. All the nightmare fantasies of our ancestors are being swept away. What we now see in this subdued and delicate half-light is the promise of the dawn, the slow turning of a whole nation towards the light, slow and imperceptible, of course, and not through eastern windows only. When daylight comes, comes in the light. And that passion for real commodities which our friend speaks of is only materialism, you know. It's retrogressive, earthbound, a hankering for matter. But we look on this spiritual city with all its faults. It is spiritual. As a nursery in which the creative functions of man, now freed from the clogs of matter, begin to try their wings, a sublime thought. So uh, there's this... So even amongst the town, then, there's this myth or there's, there's, this, there's this awaiting for some impending doom, right? There's some sort, of, some sort of narrative that people tell one another that there's an impending doom, that the, the, the gray town is actually going to, at one point, turn to night, and then all hell is going to break loose, quite literally. Hours later, there came a change. It began to grow light in the bus. The grayness outside the windows turned from mud color to mother of pearl, then to faintest blue, then to a bright blueness that stung the eyes. We seemed to be floating in a pure vacancy. There were no lands, no sun, no stars in sight, only the radiant abyss. I let down the window beside me. Delicious freshness came in for a second, and then, what the hell are you doing, shouted the intelligent man, leaning roughly across me and pulling the window sharply up. Want us all to catch our death of cold? Hit him a biff, said the big man. It reminds me of being in Rome. You could not open a window in Rome. The Romans are, the Italians are superstitious about getting a cold in the liver. And it could be 80 degrees and humid, and you cannot open the window on a bus. Because if they catch a draft, they could die. I am not joking. And the thing about Europeans is, they don't like baths. Anyway, okay, so that's what it reminded me of. All right. So here, uh, kind of, we're, we're getting uh, toward the end of our bus ride. I glanced around the bus, though the windows were closed and, closed and soon muffed. The bus was full of light. It was cruel light. I shrank, fr I shrank from the faces and forms by which I was surrounded. They were all fixed faces, not of possibilities, but impossibilities. Some gaunt, some bloated, some glaring with idiotic ferocity, some drowned beyond recovery in dreams, but all in one way or another distorted and faded. 
One had a feeling that they might fall to pieces at any moment if the light grew much stronger. Then there was a mirror on the end of the wall of the bus. I caught sight of my own, and still the light grew. So as the, as the bus you know, comes into real light, the, these persons or the souls of the persons are reve- begin to reveal for what they really are, okay? These uh, sort of hideous, um, these hideous images. The cliff loomed up ahead. It sank vertically beneath us so far I could not see the bottom, and it was dark and smooth. We were mounting all the time. At, at last, the top of the cliff became visible like a thin line of emerald green stretched tight as fiddle string. Presently, we were gliding over that top. We were flying above a level, grassy country, though through which there ran a wide river. We were losing height now. Some of the tallest tree, trops, tree tops were only 20 feet below us. Then suddenly we were at rest. Everyone had jumped up. Curses, taunts, blows, a filth of vituperation came to my ears as my fellow passengers struggled to get out. A moment later, and they had all succeeded, I was alone in the bus. And through the open door, there came to me in the fresh stillness the singing of a lark. I got out. The light and coolness that drenched me were like those of summer morning, early morning, a minute or two before the sunrise. Only that there was a certain difference. I had the sense of being in a larger space, perhaps even a larger sort of space than I had ever known before. As if the sky were further off and the extent of the green plain wider than they could be on this little ball of earth. I had got out in some sense, which made the solar system itself seem like an indoor affair. It gave me a feeling of freedom, but also of exposure, possibly of danger, which continued to accompany me through all that followed. It is the impossibility of communicating that feeling or even of inducing you to remember it as I proceed, which makes me despair of conveying the real quality of what I saw and heard. At first, of course, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the omnibus, though beginning, some of them, to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps. I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent, when they stood between me and it, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were in fact ghosts, man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will as you do with dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they had always been, as all the men I had known had been, perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead, and I lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young, tender beech leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort, and I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, 
I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. Who will give me the words to express the terror of that discovery? Golly, I thought, I'm in for it this time. I don't like it. I don't like it, screamed a voice. It gives me the pip. One of the ghosts had darted past me back into the bus. She never came out again, as far as I know. The others remained uncertain. Hi, mister, said the big man, addressing the driver. When have we got to come back, to be back? You need never come back unless you want to, he replied. Stay as long as you please. There was an awkward pause. This is simply ridiculous, said a voice in my ear. One of the quieter and more respectable ghosts had sidled up to me. There must be some mismanagement, he continued. What's the sense of allowing all that riffraff to float about here all day? Look at them. They're not enjoying it. They'd be far happier at home. They don't even know what to do. I don't know very well myself, said I. What does one do? Oh, me? I shall be met in a moment or two. I'm expected. I'm not bothering about that, but it's rather unpleasant on one's first day to have the whole place crowded out with trippers. Damn it, one's chief object in coming here at all was to avoid them. He drifted away from me, and I began to look about. In spite of his reference to a crowd, the solitude was so vast I could hardly notice the knot of phantoms in the foreground. Greenness and light had almost swallowed them up, but very far away I could see what might be either a great bank of cloud or a range of mountains. Sometimes I could make it out in steep forests, far withdrawing valleys, and even mountain cities perched on inaccessible summits. At other times, it became indistinct. The height was so enormous, my waking sight could not have taken in such an object at all. Light brooded on the top of it, slanting down thence it made long shadows behind every tree on the plain. There was no change and no progression as the hours passed. The promise or the threat of sunrise rested immovably up there. Long after that, I saw people coming to meet us. Because they were bright, I saw them while they were still very distant, and at first I did not know that they were people at all. Mile after mile they drew nearer. The earth shook under their tread as their strong feet sank into the wet turf. A tiny haze and a sweet smell went up where they had crushed the grass and scattered the dew. Some were naked, some robed, but the naked ones did not seem less adorned. And the robes did not disguise in those who wore them the massive grandeur of muscle and the radiant smoothness of flesh. Some were bearded, but no one in that company struck me as being of any particular age. One gets glimpses, even in our country, of that which is ageless. Heavy, heavy thought in the face of an infant and frolic childhood and that of a very old man. Here it was all like that. It came on steadily. I did not entirely like it. Two of the ghosts screamed and ran for the bus. The rest of us huddled closer to one another. So um, Lewis gets this idea um, from uh, what's called, what was called uh, the ref refrigerium, which uh, was sort of a, um, oh, sort of not, not really a theory so much as, as a bit of a fantasy that the, the damned were given, um, they were given a respite in heaven every once in a while, you know, sort of a refuge. They got to visit heaven and have, they got to have some kind of relief from their torments in hell. And so that's where he gets sort of the, the you know, the nascent idea for this book that, so you have the damned in, in, from the town being taken up into heaven. 
And so now they're in heaven, and, they're, and what's revealed is, is, is this place of heaven is more, far more real than they are. They are but shadows. They're but ghosts. And then now come these other people who are, you know, who are radiant. They're, they're of great grandeur. They, they're, cl- they're clearly people of this place as opposed to these ghosts. And so the majority of the book now is going to deal with that interaction, which is where, really where the meat of the book, I think, and the most interesting things take place. Okay? So we'll do a little bit of that. As the people came nearer still, I noticed that they were moving with order and determination, as though each of them had marked his man in our shadowy company. They're going to be affecting scenes, I said to myself. Perhaps it would not be right to look on. With that, I sidled away on some vague pretext of doing a little exploring. A grove of huge cedars to my right seemed attractive, and I entered it. Walking proved difficult. The grass, hard as diamonds to my unsubstantial feet, made me feel as if I were walking on wrinkled rock, and I suffered pains like those of the mermaid in in Hans Andersen. A bird ran across in front of me, and I envied it. It belonged to that country, and it was as real as the grass. It could bend the stalks and spatter itself with the dew. Almost at once, I was followed by what I have called the big man, to speak more accurately, the big ghost. He, in his turn, was followed by one of the bright people. Don't you know me? He shouted to the ghost, and I found it impossible not to turn and attend. The face of the solid spirit, he was one of those that wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund, so established in its youthfulness. Youthfulness. Well, I'm damned, said the ghost. (laughs) Sorry, there's kind of a double meaning there. Well, I'm damned, said the ghost. I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. It isn't right, Len, you know. What about poor Jack? You look pretty pleased with yourself, but what I say is, what about poor Jack? He is here, said the other. You will meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Of course I did. It is all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean, but what about the poor chap himself laying cold and dead? But he isn't. I have told you, you will meet him soon. He sent you his love. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for, as pleased as punch you, a bloody murderer, while I have been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. That is a little hard to understand at first, but it is all over now. You will be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me, and that was how everything began. Personally, said the big ghost, with an emphasis which contradicted the ordinary meaning of the word, personally... I'd have thought you and and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Very likely we shall soon be, said the other, if you'll stop thinking about it. Look at me now, said the ghost, slapping its chest, but the slap made no noise. I'd gone straight all my life. I don't say I was a religious man, and I don't say I had no faults, far from it, but but I'd done my best all my life. I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I wanted to drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job. That's the sort I was, and I don't care who knows it. It would be much better not to go on about that now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. 
I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think that you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me, and I'm only a poor man. But I got to have my rights, same as you. Oh no, it's, it's not so bad as that. You haven't, I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You will get something far better, never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best, and I never done anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. That may do very well for you, I dare say. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going in the same boat as you. Why should I? I don't want charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago, and you can tell them I said so. The other shook his head. You can never do it like that. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'd be tired out before we got to the mountains, and it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said it. What isn't true, said the, the ghost sulkily. You weren't a very decent man, and you didn't do your best. We none of us were, and none of us did. Lord bless you, it doesn't matter. There's no need to go into all it now, into it all now. You, gasped the ghost, you had, have the face to tell me I wasn't a decent chap? Of course, must I go into all that? I will tell you one thing to begin with. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. That was the work of a moment, and I was half mad when I did it, but I murdered you in my heart deliberately for years. I used to lie awake at nights thinking what I'd do to you if I ever got the chance. That is why I've been sent to you now, to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one, and longer if it pleases you. I was the worst, but all the men who worked under you felt the same. You made it hard for us, you know, and you made it hard for your wife, too, and your, for your children. You mind your business, young man, said the ghost, none of your flip, because I'm not taking any impudence from you about my private affairs. There are no private affairs, said the other. And I'll tell you another thing, you can clear off. You're not wanted. I may only be a poor man, but I'm not making pals with a murderer, let alone taking lessons from him. Made it hard for you and your like, did I? If I had you back there, I'd show you what work is. Come and show me now, said the other with laughter in his voice. It will be joy going to the mountains, but there will be plenty of work. You don't suppose I'd go with you? Don't refuse. You will never get there alone, and I'm the, the one who is sent to you. So that's the trick, is it, shouted the ghost, outwardly bitter. And yet I thought there was a kind of triumph in his voice. It had been entreated. It could make a refusal. And this seemed to it a kind of advantage. I thought there'd be some damn nonsense. It's all a click, a bloody click. Tell them I'm not coming. I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, not to go sniveling along on charity tied to your apron strings. If they're too fine to have me without you, I'll go home. This was almost, it was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. That's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. I'll go home. 
That's what I'll do. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. In the end, still grumbling, but whimpering also a little as it picked its way over the sharp grasses it made off. Okay. So this is what we're going to see, you know, moving forward. Um, The way Lewis presents it is that each of the the damned, as it were, are sent someone who's already one of the blessed. So somebody who's already in heaven, has been redeemed, has accepted mercy, um, and has sort of their, you know, we would say has their resurrected body, okay, is sent to. So it's somebody that this ghost, you know, this soul knows. And um, what we find is that the person who is sent to the ghost, to each particular ghost, is a person who kind of reveals in the ghost their greatest defect. Okay, and so what is it that this ghost um, that was talking this whole time, what, what do you suppose the greatest defect of his was? Arrogance and pride. Arrogance and pride? So, self-righteousness, yeah. Right. Pretty stuck on him. What do, you, what do you keep talking about that he wanted? His rights. I got to have my rights. You know, I have a right to be here. So extrapolate this. I, I have a right to be in heaven. I was good enough. I tried my hardest. I did my best. Entitled. Very good. Also self-deception, de- right? Because because the guy who came to meet him um, basically said, well, you weren't really that good. I murdered you in my heart for years. Basically, you were horrible, you know, but he, he thought, you know, he was, and this is a sign of, somebody mentioned narcissism, this is a sign of narcissism, is that the narcissist has an inability, it's one of the things, it's, it's almost too painful for a narcissist to see their own faults, right? To, to actually believe that they have faults is, is to receive any kind of criticism, whether it be from someone else or even even from the self is too painful and they just can't even even go to that place this man is so closed off that he doesn't deserve what he should get you know his rights that he he won't ask for charity right um which he which he says to the uh to the to the blessed man who comes to him you know i'm not going to ask for bleeding charity and he says well ask for it that's what you should ask for, bleeding charity, right? The blood of Christ on the cross. That's exactly what you should be asking for. And you can have it. You just have to give this thing up, you know, this. And, and this is what Lewis is so good at. We saw it in the screw tape letters as well. He's so good at, at you know, taking, you can imagine if he took Bill, you know, and he analyzed Bill and, and he could find Bill's thing. Um, and I think a lot of us have, a thing you know we have we have our guard up there's something we're holding on to um and maybe we've let go of it you know i don't want to say we haven't let go of it at all but but oftentimes we have like one thing it could be our pride it could be it could be the ego it could be you know an inability to to just sort of accept that charity that comes from christ you know that that lack of ability to be humble and just let go and, and, and that's what we see in this guy is he just can't do it. He cannot, uh, he cannot humble himself. He can't see beyond himself. He's so focused on what he thinks he deserves. He can't accept, he can't accept forgiveness. He can't accept charity. 
which is, which is a, such an important facet of, of, um, of repentance. You can't repent unless you know there's something to repent for. Unless we're conscious of our sinfulness, unless we're conscious of our, of our faults or uh, our lack, unless we know what those are, we can't ask for something else to, to make up for it. We can't ask to be redeemed. And yet this is the very thing that, um, you know, you kind of wonder, like, you know, why does God make life so hard sometimes? Why does God, this is a, the perennial question, why does God make, make or allow so many people to suffer? Why does why is the world so crappy? You know, why is, <laughs> you can go on and on and on and on. Or, or just individually, why am I the way I am? Why can't I get over the crap that I've been dealing with for 46 years? Or since I was of the age of reason, 39 years. You know, why can't, <laughs> I'm still dealing with stuff that I dealt with when I was 17. You know, why is that? You know, why doesn't it just go away? And, you know, um, God, God kind of wants us this way in a sense. Okay, he doesn't want us to sin, of course. You know, he, he wants us to avoid sin. He, he wants us to have a lack. He wants us to have gaps. He wants us to have space that only he can fill. Um, and the only way that there's space in which he can fill is if there's weakness, if there's less, if there's a lack of perfection. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need God we certainly wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't need to be redeemed because we'd be fine, right? I mean, that's the secular humanist approach. Everyone's fine, you know, and this guy deserved, you know, he deserved to get into heaven. And there, there's kind of a, a secular view of that now where, where people think, well, everyone's kind of doing the best they can and everybody's a decent kind of guy and isn't that good enough? I mean, God loves us. We're all going to go to heaven. And that's what people think. Well, Father, no, they don't think that. I've done a lot of funerals, and I've talked to a lot of people. They all think it. Everyone thinks it. It's only the religious people who think, well, maybe they weren't good enough. <laughs> maybe I need to pray for them. Maybe I need to do something for them. The, the, the sort of you know, non-religious people, they just presume everybody's an angel in heaven. You know, and now there's all kinds of reasons for that, but I think it's... It's important to, to, when we look at the Christian tradition and, and we look at revelation itself, we look at, look at Christ, and, and this is why it's such a great way that he's going to present all of these different interactions. Because what we're going to do is we're going to meet different people who have a different thing that they need to give up. They need to repent of to be saved. Okay, And, and, and what we find in the interaction is always invitation. It's never uh, condemnation. It's never judgment. So, you know, you look at the scriptures like with the, uh, uh, the Lord giving that, uh, I can't, you know, I can't quote chapter and verse. I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic. Um, but, you know, the, uh, there's the one where, uh, um, where, where Jesus says, you know, it's a parable. So, you know, the king says, you know, send out all the invitations for the wedding feast and then, you know, there, there are all these people with all these excuses. Oh, I can't come. I'm too busy. I just planted crops. I got this. I got to bury the dead. I got to, you know, whatever. And the king's like, all right, well, then send the, so those were all the good people, you know, all the friends and all the seemingly righteous people. Well, then just go on to the alleys and invite anybody, anybody who wants to come. Um, salvation is presented by the Lord as invitation. 
not as, you know, I think, I think oftentimes we, we, see, um, we see salvation as transactional, just like this guy did. It's a transaction. If I do the good stuff, God will give me the good stuff. If I act good, God will give me heaven. I can earn it, which, by the way, is, is actually a heresy. It's a heresy. Pelagianism. Um, heaven cannot be earned. It can't, salvation cannot be earned. It was earned for us by Christ's death on the cross. Salvation is gift which can only be received or rejected. It's, it's a gift that has to be received. But if it's not received, what can God do? And that's what we're seeing playing out here. If, if salvation won't be received, what is left, you know, think about it as a, as a parent. Um, Faye, think about it as a, uh, as a parent. I think this battery's dying. You know, there's only so much you can do for your kids. Any of the parents here. There's only so much you can do. And if, if one of them or two of them go off the rails, what are you going to do? You can't force them to see what's wrong with their life. Even though everyone else maybe can see it or a lot of people can see it, you can't make them see it. You can't force them to, to see the good. You can't force them to, to, to turn their life around. All you can do is invite them. And you know that the older they get, the less they want to listen to you. I don't, I don't listen to a thing my mom says anymore, you know. Um, Actually, I, <laughs> she would tell you I never did. Um, you know, but as the, the older the kids get, you know, the less they're going to listen to any kind of authority. It's just, it's just kind of the nature of things. And so, and, and parents really struggle with this because they, they, bec- they start to see reality as they get older. They start to see reality so much clearer, I think. And they're, they're less encumbered by the things of their youth. And, and so they can see what's, what's really so important but they can't make their own children or those they love see it. You just can't make that happen. You can't force, you know, like, uh, like a good Catholic mom who wants her kids to go to church. You can't force your kids to go to church. And the more you try to force them, the more they'll resist. You know, they're not going to go, especially, you know, once they're 35, they're not going to go because you tell them to go. They're going to not go because you tell them to go, you know. Um, and that all starts when they're about 16, you know, that's just the nature of, of the human person. So as a parent, you can't force it. And so you, there's a lot of suffering for, for parents who, who, you know, recognize their children are kind of off, off the tracks or off the rails. And, um, but what are you going to do? Well, all you can do is woo, so to speak. You can only woo. Do you know what woo means? Yeah, you woo a woman, right? You know, you, you, you. Not seduction, but, but you know, you, you kind of you send her flowers and chocolates and Instagram messages, you know, whatever. You know, you try to, yeah, you try to influence in a, in a positive way. You, you try to, um, you know, you try to draw, by, by, draw them closer by goodness than by judgment, which never works, you know. So this is how God works. God actually doesn't work by way of threats. I mean, he's clear about, he's clear, look, in the end, there's going to be sheep and goats because there has to be in the end a decision, right? There, there is a decision in the end. Either people want to be with me forever or they don't. And I'm going to do all I can. 
In fact, he did all he could. He died for every single one of us. I'm going to do all I can to get them to be with me. But if they don't want it, what else can I do? I have to leave them alone. It's just the same thing you have to do with your kids. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the, the best parallel that I, can, um, that I can think of. Okay, maybe we'll stop there. What do you think? All right, let me do one more chapter. We'll do chapter five. For a moment, there was a silence under the cedar trees, and then, pad, 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 it was broken. Two velvet-footed lions came bouncing into the open space, their eyes fixed upon each other, and started playing some solemn romp. Their manes looked as if they had been just dipped in the river, whose noise I could hear close at hand, though the tree hid it. Not greatly liking my company, I moved away to find that river, and after passing some thick flowering bushes, I succeeded. The bushes came almost down to the brink. It was as smooth as the Thames, but flowed softly like a mountain stream. Pale green where trees overhung it, but so clear that I could count the pebbles at the bottom. Close beside me, I saw another of the bright people in conversation with a ghost. It was that fat ghost with the cultured voice who had addressed me in the bus, and it seemed to be wearing gaiters. My dear boy, I'm delighted to see you, it was saying to the spirit, who was naked and almost blindingly white. I was talking to your poor father the other day and wondering where you were. You didn't bring him, said the other. Well, no, he lives a long way from the bus, and to be quite frank, he's been getting a little eccentric lately, a little difficult, losing his grip. He never was prepared to make any great efforts, you know. If you remember, he used to go to sleep when you and I got talking seriously. Ah, Dick, I shall never forget some of our talks. I expect you've changed your views a bit since then. You became rather narrow-minded towards the end of your life, but no doubt you've broadened out again. How do you mean? Well, it's obvious by now, isn't it, that you weren't quite right? Why, my dear boy, you were coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell. But wasn't I right? (laughs) Sorry, I just think it's funny. Bill, that shows you they, they don't know where the heck they are. But wasn't I right? Oh, in a spiritual sense, to be sure. I still believe in them in that way. I'm still, my dear boy, looking for the kingdom, but nothing superstitious or mythological. Excuse me, where do you imagine you've been? Ah, I see. You mean the gray town with its continual hope of mourning. We must all live by hope, must we not? With its field for indefinite progress is, in a sense, heaven if we only have eyes to see it. That's a beautiful idea. I didn't mean that at all. Is it possible you don't know where you've been? Now that you mention it, I don't think we ever do give it a name. What do you call it? We call it hell. There's no need to be profane, my dear boy. I may not be very orthodox, but in your sense of that word, in your sense of that word, but I do feel that these matters ought to be discussed simply and seriously and reverently. Discuss hell reverently. I meant what I said. You have been in hell. Though if you don't go back, you may call it purgatory. Go on, my dear boy, go on. That is so like you. No doubt you'll tell me why on your view I was sent there. I'm not angry. But don't you know? You went there because you are an apostate. An apostate is one who rejects the true faith. All right. Are you serious, Dick? Perfectly. 
This is worse than I expected. Do you really think people are penalized for their honest opinions, even assuming for the sake of argument that those opinions were mistaken? Do you really think there are no sins of the intellect? There are indeed, Dick. There is hidebound prejudice and intellectual dishonesty and timidity and stagnation, but honest opinions fearlessly followed, they are not sins. I know we used to talk that way. I did it too until the end of my life when I became what you call narrow. It all turns on what are honest opinions. Mine certainly were. They were not only honest, but heroic. I asserted them fearlessly. When the doctrine of the resurrection ceased to commend itself to the critical faculties which God had given me, I openly rejected it. <laughs> I pre He's an apostate. He rejected the resurrection. I preached my famous sermon. I defied the whole chapter. I took every risk. What risk? What was, what was at all likely to come of it except what actually came? Popularity, sales for your books, invitations, and finally a bishopric. Dick, this is unworthy of you. What are you suggesting? Friend, I'm not suggesting at all. You see, I know now. Let us be frank. Our opinions were not honestly come by. We simply found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. At college, you know, we, we just started automatically writing the kind of essays that got good marks and saying the kind of things that won applause. When in our whole lives did we only honestly face in solitude the one question on which it all turned, whether after all the supernatural might not in fact occur? When did we put up one moment's real resistance to the loss of our faith, loss of our faith? If this is meant to be a sketch of the genesis of liberal theology in general, I replied that it is mere libel. Do you suggest that men like, I have nothing to do with any generality, nor with any man but you and me. Oh, as you love your own soul, remember, you know that you and I were playing with loaded dice. You didn't want the other to be true. We were afraid of crude salvationism, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age, afraid of ridicule, afraid above all of real spiritual fears and hopes. I'm far from denying that young men may make mistakes. They may well be influenced by current fashions of thought, but it's not a question of how the opinions are formed. The point is that they were honest, my honest opinions sincerely expressed. Of course, having allowed myself, oneself to drift unresisting, unpraying, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires, we reached a point where we no longer believed the faith. Just in the same way, a jealous man drifting and unresisting reaches a point at which he believes lies about his best friend. A drunkard reaches a point at which, for the moment, he actually believes that another glass will do him no harm. The beliefs are sincere in the sense that they do occur as psychological events in the man's mind. If that's what you mean by sincerity, they are sincere, and so were ours. But errors which are sincere in that sense are not innocent. You'll be justifying the Inquisition in a moment. Why? Because the Middle Ages erred in one direction, does it follow that there is no error in the opposite direction. Well, this is extremely interesting, said the Episcopal ghost. It's a point of view. Certainly it's a point of view in the meantime. All right, so he's an Episcopal bishop, all right? And he got caught up in, and got excited about all kinds of liberal theology, including <laughs> theology that denied the resurrection, which, you know, you might wonder why the heck stay a bishop? You know, why be Christian at all if you don't believe in the resurrection? But he went right along with it 
and you know, gain celebrity, gain advancement, you know, gain book sales because of these honest opinions he claims, right? There is no meantime, said the other. All that, all that is over. We are not playing now. I have been talking of the past, your past and mine, only in order that you may turn from it forever. One wrench and the tooth will be out. You can begin as if nothing had ever gone wrong. White as snow, it's all true, you know. He is in me for you with that power. And I have come a long journey to meet you. You have seen hell. You are in sight of heaven. Will you even now repent and believe? I'm not sure that I've got the exact point you were trying to make, said the ghost. I'm not trying to make any point, said the spirit. I'm telling you to repent and believe. But my dear boy, I believe already. We may not be perfectly agreed, but you have completely misjudged me if you do not realize that my religion is, is very real, a very real and a very precious thing to me. Very well, said the other, as if changing his plan. Will you believe in me? In what sense? Will you come with me to the mountains? It will hurt at first until your feet are hardened. Reality is harsh to the feet of shadows, but will you come? Well, that is a plan. I'm perfectly ready to consider it. Of course, I should require some assurances. I should want to guarantee that you are taking me to a place where I shall find a wider sphere of usefulness and scope for the talents that God has given me, and an atmosphere of free inquiry. In short, all that one means by civilization and or the spiritual life. No, said the other. I can promise you none of these things. No sphere of usefulness. You are not needed there at all. No scope for your talents. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry, for I will bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. Ah, but we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind, must it not? Prove all things, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. If that were true and known to be true, how could anyone travel hopefully? There would be nothing to hope for. But you must feel yourself that there is something stifling about the idea of a finality. Stagnation, my dear boy, what is more soul-destroying than stagnation? You think that because hitherto you have experienced truth only with the abstract intellect. I will bring you where you can taste it like honey and be embraced by it as by a bridegroom. Your thirst shall be quenched. Well, really, you know, I am not aware of any thirst for some ready-made truth which puts an end to intellectual activity in the way you seem to be describing. Will it leave me the free play of mind, Dick? I must insist on that, you know. Free as a man is free to drink while he is drinking, he is, still not, he is not free still to be dry. The ghost seemed to think for a moment. I can make nothing of the idea, of that idea, it said. Listen, said the white spirit, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. Ah, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. You have gone far wrong. Thirst was made for water, inquiry for truth. What you now call the free play of inquiry is neither more nor less to do with the ends for which intelligence was given you than masturbation has to do with marriage. If we cannot be reverent, that there is at least no need to be obscene. The suggestion that I should return at my age to the mere factual inquisitiveness of boyhood strikes me as preposterous. In any case, 
That question-and-answer conception of thought only applies to matters of fact. Religious and speculative, speculative questions are surely on a different level. We know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. We know nothing of speculation. Come and see. I will bring you to eternal fact, the father of all other facthood. I should object very strongly to describing God as a fact. <laughs> the su supreme value would surely be less inadequate description. It is hardly, do you not even believe that he exists? Exists. What does existence mean? You will keep on applying some sort of static, ready-made reality, which is, so to speak, there, and to which our minds have simply to conform. These great mysteries cannot be approached in that way. If there were such a thing, there is no need to interrupt, my dear boy. Quite frankly, I should not be interested in it. It would be of no religious significance. God, for me, is something purely spiritual. The spirit of sweetness and light and tolerance and her service, Dick, service. We mustn't forget that, you know. If the thirst of the reason is really dead, said the spirit, and then stopped as though pondering, then suddenly he said, can you at least still desire happiness? Happiness, my dear Dick, said the ghost placidly. Happiness, as you will come to see when you are older, lies in the path of duty, which reminds me, bless my soul, I'd nearly forgotten. Of course, I can't come with you. I have to be back next Friday to read a paper. We have a little theological society down there. Oh, yes, it's plenty of intellectual life. Not a very high quality, perhaps. One notices a certain lack of grip, a certain confusion of mind. That is where I can be of some use to them. There are even regrettable jealousies. I don't know why, but tempers seem less controlled than they used to be. Still, one mustn't expect too much of human nature. I feel I can do a great work among them. But you've never asked me what my paper is about. I'm taking the text about growing up to the measure of the stature of Christ and working out an idea which I feel sure you'll be interested in. I'm going to point out how people always forget that Jesus, here the ghost bowed, was a comparatively young man when he died. He would have outgrown some of his earlier views, you know, if he'd lived, and he might have done with a little more tact and patience. I'm going to ask my audience to consider what his mature views would have been, a profoundly interesting question. What a different Christianity, what a different Christianity we might have had if only the founder had reached his full stature. <laughs> I shall end up by pointing out how this deepens the significance of the crucifixion. One feels for the first time what, is, what a disaster it was, what a tragic waste. So much promise cut short. Oh, you must be going. Well, well, so must I. Goodbye, my dear. Dear boy, it has been a great pleasure. Most stimulating and provocative. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. The ghost nodded its head and beamed on the spirit with a bright clerical smile, but with his best, the best approach to which his, such unsubstantial lips could manage and then turned away, humming softly to itself, City of God, how broad and far. Okay, I'll just stop there. So, so, we have this, uh, so we have this guy who's a bishop. And um, what do you notice about, about him? What do, you, what do you find to be his... What are his flaws that, so again, he sent, uh, you know, maybe it's a younger cleric, you know, somebody, a priest who was younger than him, and he was a bishop, and, you know, they were obviously engaged in this great intellectual, they thought, you know, the, these, these great intellectual pursuits. 
Yeah, he was, he was so enamored with his own intellect that he lost his faith. Okay. So he reduced God to sort of an object of his intellect, so to speak. Yeah. He was convinced, he, and, and that the simple answers that he had been taught since childhood were not the answers, that there was something. Well, I don't, I don't know if that's true. Was he really convinced that, because, I don't think he, because that was one of the questions that the, the Spirit put to him is, is, are you still looking for answers? And, and he was saying, well, no, actually, I want to ha- continue to have free inquiry. And, he, and, and the Spirit is saying, but I'll bring you to truth himself. I'll bring you to God where all of your answers will be, will, will be found. And, and this, you know, the ghost, you know, the bishop is, well, I don't really want that. You know, I mean, what would life be like without free inquiry and continuing to, to think about such things? And, that, and so the spirit, the, yeah, the spirit says, well, but the intellect is made for answers. You know, the, the end, the goal of the, of, of the intellect is truth. That's, that's why we ask questions, because we want truth. We, want, we don't want more questions. But, but this bishop was so focused, he felt like his life was, was consumed by just continuing to question, but to never desire answer, to never desire truth. But, Did, had he ever really encountered a, a personal relationship with God? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, he had that desire to, to teach and to, to go back. He, he um, Remember when he, he uh, was telling the spirit, well, I'll go along with you as long as you can promise me a place of usefulness that I'll be needed, that I'll be, you know, and, and we get those lines, uh, which, which are great, and it's good for us to remember um, as well. Um, when the spirit says, I can promise you none of these things, no sphere of useful, usefulness, you are not needed there at all. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God does not need. By definition, God does not need. If God needed something, then that would impute some sort of perfection or some lack in God. He doesn't need us, okay? God is not codependent. <laughs> he doesn't need us. No scope for your talents. We don't need your talents. We're not going to use your talents such as you think. Only forgiveness for having perverted them. No atmosphere of inquiry. For I will bring you not to the land of questions, but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. He had, he had lost his desire to see the face of God, to see God, you know, which you think about, well, what in the heck are you a priest for or a bishop for if you don't want to know God? And that's the essence of what we're about, is to know God. What other goal is there, you know? Um, you know, the... One of the other things that, that's, that's really, I think, elucidated here, although, well, it's not, perhaps it's, it's a bit opaque, is that we, with, um, as, as we live in what is now considered by many 
um, a postmodern society, one of the features of, of postmodern society is that there is no truth. People don't believe in truth anymore. They just believe in, you know, your truth and your truth and your truth or your narrative or your narrative. And you see it played out. All you got to do is watch uh, the news channels. You can watch Fox. You can watch CNN. You can watch MSNBC. And you have different people with their narrative yelling at each other, not discussing a single thing, not trying to arrive at truth, not trying, but they have, you know, the right has that truth and the left has that truth. And you could, and, you know, you can have one guy asking another person pointed questions, clear questions, looking for answers. And that other person will not give answers. They will merely assert narrative, which has nothing to do with truth. It just has to do with perspective. Because what's happened in, in our culture is that truth is, is not really something to be sought after or attained. You know, the, the goal is really power. And so the power of the narrative is what becomes true and what people believe. That's why you have, and we see it played out in our politics today with the whole, you know, with, with Trump and then the fake news and everything else. They're both doing it. They're both claiming that their narrative is right. And, and you, so you have the whole thing where, um, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm not trying to reveal my hand here, but, you know, I mean, one side you have all the, the investigation stuff going on, and, and there's a particular perspective about the investigation of the president that, you know, people are, it's been corrupt since the beginning, and they're out to get him, and the Democrats are just angry because they lost to, a, you know, a TV star. <laughs> and, uh, you know, on the, on the left, they're like, no, it's real, there's real stuff there. And it's all about narrative, and whoever wins, whoever wins the persuasiveness, okay, be, that's what becomes the truth. It doesn't matter what's really true. And this is, again, this is, played, this is how the media works today. It works on both sides because they know that people don't have time or attention span to actually talk, and nobody really wants to, to, to come to what the truth is. That's why, I, I don't know about you, but there can be a certain, sort of exhaustion in, in kind of watching all of that stuff and just kind of wondering what's true anymore. I don't even know what's true anymore. Because there's so, because what, what they figured out, I mean, I'm one who believes the media is corrupt, so I'll just show my hand there. But, but everybody has a narrative and they're all pushing their narrative about what's true. It doesn't matter what's really true. It's all about what wins, okay? So like with this guy, He's, he's just looking, after, he's looking out for his narratives about what's true about God or what's, but he's not really going to any arrival point. He's not seeking an ultimate truth. He's just sort of, um, you know, seeking his own satisfaction of continuing to have this sort of subjective view about God and reality, et cetera, which is the place we're in. This is why, you know, people can say, well, you know, I have my truth and I believe what I believe and you have what you believe and and that's, and, and that's fine. It can be different than mine as long as we're tolerant because the greatest virtue of the age is tolerance. So as long as your view is tolerant, don't say anything about gays or abortion or transgender or guns or, you know, any of the off-limits things we can't talk about because those are intolerant. But as long as, you're in, <laughs> as, long as your, your views are tolerant according to what I believe is tolerant, then you can have that view and it can be your own truth and it can be different from my truth, even though they contradict each other, right? And that's the, that's the world we live in. And so, you know, this bishop is so filled with his, 
with, with this sort of, um, um, you know, this pursuit of the intellectual that he's forgotten that the intellect was made for an arrival. You know, as, as the Spirit says, look, what is there to hope for if there's no truth? There's no hope for the intellect if you're not looking to arrive anywhere. This guy was just focused on continuing to ask questions because, you know, he got his satisfaction out of that sort of edginess of doing that. And he could not come to the point of actually desiring God. He had become so wrapped up in his intellect and ego that he had no more desire for what really mattered. Okay, so we will feel free to, I mean, obviously, you know, now you don't have to read ahead. Um, but we'll start up on chapter six next week. Have a great night.